Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. continue with this, the second part of our tale, let me tell you what else happened in 1919. Well, on the 1st of January, Ayalair, an admiralty yacht, sunk at the entrance of Stornoway Harbour, with the loss of at least 201 men out of the 283 on board. The overcrowded vessel was trying to negotiate a difficult route under exceptionally bad weather conditions. The disaster cost the Isle of Lewis almost the whole of its young male population. The 5th of January saw the German Workers' Party, a predecessor to the Nazi Party, formed by the merger of Anton Drexler's Committee of Independent Workmen with the journalist Karl Harrer's Political Workers' Circle. On April the 15th, the Save the Children Fund is created in the UK to raise money for the relief of German and Austrian children. On the 3rd of July, at the Russian Civil War Southern Front, General Anton Denikin of the White Volunteer Army proclaims Directive Number 08878, or the Moscow Directive, defining the operational and strategic target of the White Guard Armies to seize Moscow, at this time controlled by the Bolsheviks, beginning the advance on Moscow. And lastly, from the 11th of October to November the 18th, The Red Army defeat the White Army in the Oral-Kursk operation, recapturing the cities and stopping the Whites' offensive to Moscow. But our particular event happened on the 17th of June and was part of Operation Red Trek, an Allied intervention into the Russian Civil War. Word of the Week And the word I give you this week is... Disinformation, which is derived from the Russian desinformatia, which means false information or propaganda. Other words that originated in Russia are mammoth and beluga. Before I continue with this tale, let me give you a little background information. The Russian Civil War 
which lasted from the 7th of November 1917 to the 16th of June 1923, was a multi-party civil war in the former Russian Empire, sparked by the overthrowing of the monarchy and the new Republican government's failure to maintain stability. The Russian Baltic fleet was the key naval force available to the Bolsheviks, the enemy to the Russians, and essential to the protection of Petrograd. The fleet was severely depleted after the First World War and Russian Revolution, but still formed a significant force. Many of the officer corps were on the white Russian side in the Civil War, or had been murdered, but some competent leaders remained. A Royal Navy squadron was sent under Rear Admiral Edwin Alexander Sinclair. This force consisted of modern C-class cruisers and V and W-class destroyers. In January 1919, he was succeeded in command by Rear Admiral Walter Cohen. The British forces were key in hampering the Bolsheviks' movements at sea, and the Royal Navy ships bombarded the Bolsheviks on land in support of Estonian and Latvian troops, and provided supplies. In April 1919, things became so dangerous for the Latvian president, Carlos Almanis, that he was forced to seek refuge on board the Saratov, under the protection of British ships. The incident that made Admiral Cohen realise that he needed a base of operations near Kronstadt was when, in the summer of 1919, the Royal Navy had bottled up the Red Fleet at Kronstadt. Several small skirmishes were fought near Coatlin Island, and in the course of one of these clashes, on the 31st of May, during a Bolshevik probing action in the west, the battleship Petropavlovsk scored two hits on the destroyer HMS Walker from a distance of 14,000 yards, when a flotilla of British destroyers had attempted to catch the outgunned Bolshevik destroyer Azad. HMS Walker acted as a lure but suffered some damage, and two of her crew were wounded while the other British destroyers eventually disengaged when they came too close to Bolshevik coastal artillery and minefields. On the 5th of June, Cohen, with his naval units, arrived at the new anchorage, a Bjorko Sound which proved ideal for action against Kronstadt. However, on the 9th of June, the Red Fleet's destroyers, Gabriel and Azard, raided the location, and the Royal Navy submarine HMS L-55 was sunk in the aftermath, apparently after being cornered in a British minefield by the Soviet warships. It's at this point we get back to Captain Augustus Agar. And if you haven't already, it's a good idea to listen to the first part of this amazing story. Because at the end of that, Captain Agar had just dropped off his first courier, or secret agent, and he was just coming back. This is what he has to say next. Having got through, I then, instead of going direct to Teriyaki, I continued towards Talbukin Lighthouse. I wanted to make a reconnaissance for the benefit of the Admiral and see what the Russians from Kronstadt had out. What sort of patrol craft? Were there any destroyers, cruisers? And I, I made a detour before reaching Teriyaki, which we did by daylight. So far, so good. We landed the courier and I quite certain in my own mind that he would have little difficulty in 
contacting ST25 in Petrograd. All we had now to do was to wait until my return, which I arranged for four days. Much happened in those four days. On the morning of the day that Agar had to go and fetch the courier, Peter, things didn't exactly go to plan. I must explain. The Gulf of Finland is so situated that on either end, the northern end, there's a, a master fortress called Fort Inonini. And on the southern end, another master fortress, even more powerful, called Krasnir Gorka. The northern fortress was in the hands of the Finns, the southern fortress in the hands of the Bolsheviks. But it so happens that on the day I landed our courier and the River Neva, the, the Estonian white Englandlanders mutinied against the, their guards in the red fortress at Krasnir Gorka and hoisted the white flag. The Bolshevik reply to this was, of course, to send out units from the Red Fleet in Kronstadt and bombard the Red Fort from the rear because the guns of the Red Fort only could point to seaward. So the unfortunate Englandlanders in the Krasnir Gorka could do nothing about it except take what punishment was given to them. And this, the last, we watched from Teriyaki, from the steeple of our church. It was a piteous situation. I knew where my duty lay. My duty was to, was with ST-25, contact him in Petrograd or Moscow, wherever he might be, and then bring back my contact, Sokolov, and thus establish this chain of communication with London. That was my duty and my job. As Agar watched the destruction, he knew that both Britain and the Finns would wish Krasnia Gorka to be relieved, that Cohen's small squadron lacked the muscle to do anything, and that the only means of attack was either from the air or with his torpedoes. He therefore decided to ask permission to attack. I knew where the, the Admiral was extremely perturbed about this bombardment of Krasnia Gorka. His duty was the liberation of Estonia. And with Krasnir Gorka, with offensive intention on the Russian part, Estonia was threatened on the whole of her frontier. <laughs> Word on the street. Today, my friends, we travel forth to BS13 in Bristol and Templeland Road, a field name in Bishport Manor taken from the 1683 survey. The temple in question was a house of the Knights Templar, members of a religious and military order founded in Jerusalem in 1118 to protect the pilgrim roads to the holy places. The organisation spread rapidly throughout the Western Christian world and acquired great wealth. It was dissolved in 1312. And so the courier or secret agent, SD31, sent a message to London to ask if they could help. But it wasn't quick. Well, 
1831 offered to send a telegram to London and asked permission for me to attack these bombarding ships, which might stop them. The bombardment went on all day and the next before a reply came back. A reply that I had seen to my disappointment was your boats should be used for intelligence purposes only unless otherwise directed by the senior naval officer. In other words, unless otherwise directed by Admiral Cowan. As you're about to hear, Agar took on his own interpretation of this message. There's where I saw daylight. The decision had to be taken, and the Admiral was at sea. I couldn't communicate with him, but I knew from what he told me that he would support me in anything I did. So I argued to myself that if I could get Sokolov back and thus establish our contact with SD-25, I could then take fortune in my hands and try and deliver an attack on these Russian battleships, which were quite close to Teriyaki, not more than, I would say, a matter of 20 miles, if that. The bombardment continued. And so, before he could put his plan into action, Captain Agar had to collect the courier. We got to the place in the River Neva about the same time, two o'clock in the morning, looked around, nothing to be seen. So waiting in these cases like this is appalling. Waited five minutes, ten minutes, each minute seems an hour, and then I heard a low what you might call whale, and the sound of oars. Yes, it was him. Then the three flashes, our secret signal, and within a minute, two minutes, three minutes perhaps, he was alongside, deadbeat. The story would come later. The thing was to get him on board. And the pram, the little dinghy, who did both, start up the engine again and away back through the chain of forts. We successfully accomplished this, back to Teriyaki. And once that was done, he was free to plan out his offensive attack. But the situation seemed to have changed. We climbed to our church steeple, but there seemed to be a pall of smoke, heavy smoke, all over, lying all over Kronstadt. No Bombarding ships appeared to be there. They'd gone, and obviously gone back to harbour. What had happened? The relative peace, though, wouldn't last because later on in the day, the armoured cruiser Oleg arrived and started a ferocious bombardment. And in the afternoon, they started slow bombardment. It went steadily on till six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock in the evening. Though there was no respite. And obviously the two battleships had gone back to the harbour for more ammunition. Well, I decided myself that yes, it was my target. And I'd, I'd go in and, and have a, a crack at it anyway. I left at slow speed, very slow speed, across the minefield. 
round about midnight, by which time it was pretty well dark. I didn't want to go too fast because of the bow wave. I, the bow wave was the one thing that would give us way, so I kept a fairly slow speed until I reached the lighthouse, Tolbukin Lighthouse, and was not far from this lighthouse where the cruiser was anchored. She was guarded by patrol craft and also a screen of destroyer. First of all, had to get through. And so, choosing a gap between two destroyers, Captain Agar went through. Slowly, so as not to create a large bow wave. But things didn't go smoothly. But unfortunately, it's just sorry, going through the gap between the two destroyers, I had an accident in the boat. Now, this I must explain. My crew consisted of the Hampshire, the Michigan, Faithful Beelie, and the mechanic, myself, no one else. We wore our uniforms, and I had my little white ensign, the white ensign that we flew in the boat. The accident had to do with the torpedo, which was fired from the stern or the back of the boat. The torpedo was pushed out by a ram, and once it was in the water, a device in the torpedo picked up the speed of the propeller so that it could go at speed and clear the boat. One must be careful then, that's immediately after firing, to get out of its way. There's a definite risk of the torpedo hitting the boat, if you don't. This must, must always be accepted. The firing of the torpedo, torpedo, however, is done by means of a cartridge, a cordite cartridge. Just after I'd given the order, get ready, to the midshipman, whose job it is to get the torpedo ready and put the cartridge in, something must have gone wrong as he by, had fired the torpedo by mistake. The whole boat shuddered. It's the most dreadful thing. Luckily, again, my luck was in. I had the preventive stops down. And so, with that disaster averted, all that remained now was to replace the cartridge. Not so easy when one's at high tension and the choppy sea was running. Not a big one, but quite choppy enough to make things most uncomfortable and unpleasant. And to add even more tension, this occurred as they were between the two destroyers and there was nothing else for them to do but to stop and reload. And so I said as calmly as I could to Hampshire and Bealey, put in the spare cartridge and reload. It seemed to me that that reloading process must have taken three hours. I don't suppose it took three minutes, but they did it between the two. And I was so sorry for Hampshire and could see he was so shaken. And I don't think he ever recovered from the, the shock. Anyway, we reloaded the cartridge and I went on to my target. And with the torpedo ready, all they had to do was get in position and fire. Got the t target, as far as I could judge, in my sights, and fired at her at a range which I calculated to be between 500 and 1,000 yards, the ideal range for the purpose. And once she was fired, I had to get out of the way, turn the boat round, and crack on full speed and make my getaway. 
Once the torpedo was released, it was imperative that this little motorboat get away as quickly as possible. Unfortunately, the enemy wasn't going to make it easy for them. I had been seen before firing a torpedo and had drawn the fire of everything on all sides. I was like a, a rabbit being chased by all and sundry. And there's hardly time to think or look, uh, to concentrate on my boat and put on the, which now going at high speed was sufficient protection against the firing of the fort and could hear the shells whistling overhead. But it's not very pleasant when they splash and one has to send the boat through the column of water. The splash throws up. That's not pleasant, but we got away. I looked behind and I saw that our torpedo, torpedo had found the mark. A large column of smoke, almost as high as the mast of the ship, shot up and a big red flash. There was no doubt about it. I'd hit the target, but whether she would sink or whether she would swim was another matter. My job was to get her, get home. Even after all this, they couldn't go straight back to their secret base. Instead, they went 20 miles out of the Gulf of Finland to Bjorko, so that they wouldn't give the location of their base to the enemy. And they had to wait several hours until they could find out what exactly they had achieved. The next day, as soon as it was daylight, we again went to our observation post at the top of the church steeple. We were there most of the day watching what was going on. And I could see nothing. The battleships, the two Russian battleships, hadn't come out. They'd remained in Kronstadt. A pall of smoke was hanging over the whole island of Kronstadt, obviously showing. The Finnish commandant told me that one Russian ship had come out with a white flag in token of surrender. All sorts of rumors were flying around that Kronstadt had surrendered. In fact, one small boat, one of their patrol craft, did reach Bjorko and surrendered to the airport. As you can imagine, the sudden attack on enemy ships quite perplexed the local Allied military. And so Captain Agar felt he had to explain. I felt I must take the Commandant into my confidence and tell him what I've done. That, I felt, was only fair. He was staggered. You mean to tell me, he said, that you... A civilian in that fast boat of yours has attacked and probably sunk a large Russian armoured cruiser. I said, no, sir. We were wearing our uniform clothes. On that occasion, I had permission to do so. And I know our Admiral will support me. And I know that General Mannerheim will support the Admiral. He then got up and patted me on the shoulder, said something in Russian, which ST-30 said was extremely complimentary to me. He said, my duty really is to stop you from doing anything more. We will get ourselves uh, a retaliation from the Bolsheviks. Do you realize the Kronstadt guns can reach this village? I said, yes, I know that. Did you realize also that the airplanes they have a base Aryan bomb can bombard the village and your boats. I said, yes, sir. I said, I'll nevertheless 
said, I, that's what I decided on my own responsibility, I would do. I was not under orders. My own responsibility, Commandant. At this point, Captain Agar felt he needed to see the Admiral. But before he went, he wanted to see exactly what had happened to the Oleg. And so he went to the nearest airbase and found Arthur Reichel, a Swedish officer and pilot. And I said, I want to go as close as you can to Talbukin Lighthouse, which he did. And there I could see the Oleg at the bottom, quite clearly through the water, lying on her side. She was sunk. That was sufficient for me. It turns out that their activities were now well known to the Red Commissaires in Petrograd, and a large reward, reputed to be about £5,000, had been placed on Agar's capture, dead or alive. The Commandant earnestly begged him to leave. And once he'd had visual confirmation of what he'd achieved, he made his way to the Admiral. Nobody could have been more pleased, more delighted. He wanted every word, every detail, I told him. And he said, I admire your, not only your courage, said that your responsibility you took on yourself. You have helped me, because the Bolshevik fleet will know now that I have a sting, and I can use this sting if I want to. Whereas before, they knew I, I had only light cruisers to use against their capital ships. Now I have a bit more. Even though the Admiral was beyond pleased with what Aiko had achieved, the Admiralty felt differently. The reaction at the Admiralty was not, I understand at first, was not very good. And I, I am told I was not very, it was not very popular, as there was a strong party in England, particularly the Labour Party, with a certain amount of justification, justification on their side, using the slogan, Hands Off Russia. The Admiralty were in a cleft stick. On the one side, politically, they had the hands off Russia, and on the other, they had the essential purpose of the British fleet, which was to secure the independence of the Baltic states. The immediate effect upon myself of what I'd done, I was proud and glad for our team that we'd achieved, first of all, success, and we'd got out of the way. We'd done something for the fleet. That's at least the Admiral told me we had. Even so, there was still a further surprise for Captain Eager from the Admiral. To my surprise, I received a signal from him that I had been awarded the Victoria Cross. That's what I got it for. And uh, anyone who's been awarded a medal like that will know what it means. His exploits in Kronstadt wasn't over yet. Cohen had one final task for him to go with one of the boats from the flotilla and lay four mines outside Kronstadt Harbour, enough to serve the Admiral's purpose of finally sealing in the Russian ships. At the end of September, after five months in the Gulf of Finland, Agar travelled home in luxury as a King's Messenger with dispatches from the Ambassador of Helsingfors and the Admiral. Captain Augustus Agar was involved in many missions, both in World War I and World War II. In between, he was even appointed by King George V as the captain of the Royal Yacht, HMY Victoria and Albert, 
a duty he served until January 1925. He also wrote three books, Footprints in the Sea, Sharing the Flag and the Baltic Episode. And in 1945, he contested for the Conservative seat of Greenwich in the general election, but was unsuccessful. Augustus Agar eventually retired to a farm at Hartley Mordet near Alton, producing strawberries. And he died on the 30th of December 1968, at the age of 78, and was buried in Alton Cemetery, Hampshire. His Victoria Cross is displayed at the Imperial War Museum in London, along with his telescope. And the survivor of his two coastal motorboats in the Baltic is currently on display in Boathouse 4 at the National Museum of the Royal Navy at Portsmouth Historic Dockyard, which incidentally is where I first came across this historic tale. The History of North America podcast is a sweeping historical saga of the United States, Canada, and Mexico from their deep origins to our present epoch. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this exciting, fascinating, epic journey through time, focusing on the compelling, wonderful, and tragic stories of North America's inhabitants, heroes, villains, leaders, environment, and geography. This incredible historical adventure follows a path of exciting events led by interesting people who reach beyond their grasp to touch key moments in time. The History of North America podcast series is an educational and entertaining look at the thrilling chronicle of North America, an action-packed tale of a continent that is still unfolding. I invite you to come along for the ride. In the news today, a man exclaimed that his wife had said if he bought her one more stupid gift, she would burn it. So he bought her a candle. Back in the day facts. Let's start with the 18th of March 1940, when Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini meet at the Brenner Pass in the Alps and agree to form an alliance against France and the United Kingdom. On the 19th of March 1863, the SS Georgiana, said to have been the most powerful Confederate cruiser, is destroyed on her maiden voyage with a cargo of munitions, medicines and merchandise, then valued at over a million dollars. On the 20th of March, 1964, the precursor of the European Space Agency, ESRO, or European Space Research Organisation, is established per an agreement signed on June the 14th, 1962. On the 20th of March, 1967, the Supremes released their single, The Happening. On the 21st of March 1945, during World War II, we saw Operation Carthage, where Royal Air Force planes bombed Gestapo headquarters in Copenhagen, Denmark. They also accidentally hit a school, killing 125 civilians. The 22nd of March 1794, 
the Slave Trade Act of 1794 bans the export of slaves from the United States and prohibits American citizens from outfitting a ship for the purpose of importing slaves. And lastly, on the 23rd of March 1888 in England, the Football League, the world's oldest professional association football league, meets for the first time. I'll be here, same time, same place, next week. And once again, I'd love to say a huge thank you to Chris Essex and Peter Howard Dobson from the Society of Old Framlinghamians, who were gracious enough to let me share with you the interview taken of Captain Augustus Agar back in the 60s. I hope you agree with me that he gave such an interesting first-hand account of an amazing mission. And having seen the actual motorboat in the National Museum of the Royal Navy in Portsmouth, I have to say, it makes it even more spectacular because it's so small and it contained three men and a torpedo. It just beggars belief how they managed to do that and get away. Anyway, I'm really, really proud of these episodes and I'd love to know what you think. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.